I have been interested in the days right before death my entire life. When I was a child, my aunt started one of the first hospices in the United States. I grew up mowing the lawn of the small house that acted as its office. My mom worked there for almost 20 years in grant writing and development. My dad worked there too in public outreach. Hospice, death, and dying was a constant topic at my house. And it wasn't dark or sad in any way. It was just the service my family provided. In high school, I was on the debate team, and we had an entire debate season on the topic of euthanasia and living wills. Even though debate is a game, I learned the intricacies of what legally defines life and how the state and families play a role beside the wishes of the patient. And now as an adult, talking and teaching about cannabis medicine, people come up to me right at the grocery store, or they got me and they asked to talk to them in their car, or they stop me after public speeches, and very often they let me know they are dying and they want to learn about cannabis relief. I've learned to give an efficient, dry, and to-the-point response. Folks seem to appreciate that. And off they go to find some cannabis tincture with an understanding of dosing and how to use cannabis. This episode is important because dying is not cool and there will be no marketing or information provided to cannabis folks who are dying. People who will die soon and their families need one place to get most of the information they may need to get started down this path all in one place. That is what I'm trying to do with this episode today. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter this week and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Lose. My guest today is Dr. Sunil Agarwal. Dr. Agarwal is co-founder of the Ames Institute in Seattle, Washington, a practice specializing in integrative approaches to neurology, oncology, transpersonal psychiatry, and palliative care, and incorporating cannabis, ketamine, and other emerging therapies. Dr. Agarwal is a fellow of the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation and hospice and palliative medicine and the immediate past chair of the Integrative Medicine Special Interest Group at the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine. He is clinical assistant professor at the University of Washington School of Medicine and a member of the Humboldt Institute for Interdisciplinary Marijuana Research. He is also currently an associate medical director of Multicare Hospice. Dr. Agarwal has been qualified as an expert in cannabis and psilocybin medical and religious use in county, state, and federal courts. His education, associations, and publishing are extensive and can be found at amesinstitute.net. Sunil has previously been a guest on Shaping Fire Episode 3, explaining the geographical history of humans and cannabis. Today, we're going to be discussing integrating cannabis medicine into end-of-life care. Welcome to the show, Sunil. Welcome back. Oh, it's so great to be back, Django. Well, let's get let's get right into it and make clear what we're actually talking about today, because, you know, a lot of us have heard, you know, our friends and family and even the news talk about end of life care. But um, except for the idea that, oh, that person's probably reaching the end of life, we don't really have a real grasp on what that might be. So when caregivers use the term end of life care, what exactly are they saying? 
Well, like, end of life care is um, in in this in this country usually happens in in hospice care. Uh, if most most people, um, you know, when they are facing uh, end of life means in hospice, your prognosis is you have a medical condition which two doctors certify that you might have uh, six months or less to live. So it's a it's a it's a, it's kind of a care when you have you know that somebody is near the end of life and how how do you manage the care such that you maximize the quality of life uh, with the time you have left and um, that's that involves a whole range of of uh, skill sets uh, from the care from the caregiver standpoint from the medical system standpoint from the family standpoint. Um, so, you know, that's, and, and that sort of all falls under the umbrella of end of life care. So how far away from death does a patient have to be to, to, I don't know, qualify for end of life care hospice treatment? Because, you know, in a certain way we're all terminal, right? Um, but there's, there's gotta be a window where it's, it's, it's so close that, that the strategy changes. Yeah, uh, that, that's right. I mean, that's why I mentioned hospice at the at the get go because this this really is um, how we build our system of care. So um, hospice is sort of the most intensive, like um, palliative. That's another term I want to let your listeners know about is, is palliative care, which grew out of hospice. Uh, it was the type of care palliative means to cover or to cloak, um, and so it's a medical specialty. It's, you know, where you're working on symptom management, really high quality symptom management, supportive care, uh, looking at physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual suffering. We call that total pain. And so that type of care happens most intensely, 100 percent in hospice. Um, it's like a palliative intensive care in hospice um, where and, and that usually happens at, at a patient's home um, uh, and the team comes to them and also is available by by phone or you know telemedicine in these days so that's that's kind of um and that that really is as a benefit that that anybody is eligible for like i said if two doctors say that they are potentially six months or less to live no matter what what medical condition that might be i see and early, Go ahead. Yeah, sorry i was just going to say earlier than that you no know, um now but people know that even you know um um, patients need need some kind of palliative care much earlier than and then in being in hospice care, um, and and certainly anybody, you know, and, and you're you're right. I mean, we could all benefit from greater quality of life and better symptom management and care for the total pain that we experience in our lives, uh, which is a very holistic model of care. And definitely, that's that's somebody something that anybody can benefit, no matter their age or or illness status. Um, but um, the, the medical field of palliative care um, has decided to focus its efforts on patients with any, anyone who has a what we call a serious uh, or life-threatening illness. And so that's at any stage of that illness. So that could be, you know, years before somebody might, um, you know, reach, and reach their death. We don't really know. But it, it is th- that patients can still be eligible for that kind of care. Uh, even though they're not in hospice, uh, it's just it just happens in a different way. It's interesting the that that definition that you gave us for palliative care, where it is ca- uh, care that is more holistic and uh, taking care of the whole human instead of just 
let's say the the chemistry and mechanics of the body when you describe that i thought to myself well hell that's that's the kind of care that i wish i was getting from my doctor my entire life and it's just not how we how we do tend to do things in the united states which which is interesting um because you know our general fear of death in total um you hit on palliative care and you hit on end of life care as far as definitions go but since so many people use the term terminal care um why don't you hit on that too and your answer may be it's the same thing but 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 specifically what do people mean about terminal care for folks who are listening and they're they're trying to decipher what their doctor is telling them sure i mean terminal if you're terminal, if you get a diagnosis, the doctor says you're terminally ill. That just means that you um, have a, a diagnosis of an illness that, um, based on statistical tables, um, you know, will, will, will lead to your death. Um, you know, and, and that, that there's a lot of ranges of variable variability in terms of, you know, two years, one year, six months. That's there's like a lot of, um, variation in that but like for example uh an illness like uh als or lou gehrig's disease um people may live with that for many years and the decline might be slow uh, that's where you know they they a patient will might slowly lose m- m- muscle function and we don't we don't have a cure for that right now although there are some experimental approaches out there that, that might uh, modify the disease but uh you know so there's, there's another kind of philosophy or school of thought where people say, well, we say the word terminal too quickly uh, in medicine, and that really it's kind of a, um, it's, it's a it, it can be a sort of, um, what do you call it, like a arrogance, because um, we don't really know. You know, there are, there are definite examples of spontaneous remissions. There are, um, you know, there are experimental approaches and other types of things out there that, you know, uh, there are people with stage four cancer, you know, who are living um, for many, many years now with certain types of advancements that we have. So if somebody gets a diagnosis of stage four cancer, you know, and they're said, well, that's that's terminal, they might not pursue those other types of therapies that, you know, have are, are showing effectiveness for, for survival or longevity. So that's why I'm a little I, I'm cautious with the term terminal. Um, because of the, like I said, it implies a lot more than we really know, but it is helpful to know the statistical tables, you know, um, and doesn't necessarily mean that they'll all apply to an individual. There's a lot of individual variation. Um, so that's, that's where that comes from. But we've, we've kind of, um, um, I, I, I think we, we still use it in, in hospice. Um, so that's in, in hospice care, you do certify that somebody is, um, you know, we think we'll have six months or less, but then what happens, people still get, ex- let's say they're living longer because then now they're having better quality of life. And, um, and then the doctors have to recertify the patient periodically. Oh, no, they live longer than we thought. So let's, do we still think they're, they're terminal? And then they have to go through a process like that. So that, that's, it's kind of a, it's a moving target. Um, so just for the clarity of folks, um, when we talk about terminal or not terminal but let's use end of life care in this case we're not really looking for a solution anymore right because very often on this show we talk about you know taking large doses of cannabinoids to um to fight cancer or you know uh, other um you know traditionally terminal 
diseases. But but really, by the time you're in end of life care, the goal really isn't to okay, what are the ways that we can we can stop this? It's really about how can we make you comfortable? How can we make you mentally present so that you can interact with your family? How can we decrease your pain so you can experience some joy and maybe a little bit of self actualization um, before your last breaths? But it's not really about curing you anymore, right? Well, you know, people still uh, people can still have hope for that kind of thing. If they, uh, we don't we don't want to um, discourage that. You can still have that kind of care. Uh, you can you can have the care exactly as you described: uh, um, impeccable uh, management of comfort, family support, psycho spiritual, physical health and healing in terms of quality of life. Um, you know, uh, improving your like you said, your mental acuity, your just physical comfort, all the different layers, and then making sure that your family is also cared for and, and has support. And we usually accomplish this um, with not just like one doctor or one nurse, but really like a whole team of, of we call a multidisciplinary team of specialists, like uh, chaplains, social workers, you know, integrative therapy, um, acupuncture providers, or Reiki, or energy. You know, there's a there's very broad range of of specialties that get involved to to make that that kind of care um, possible uh, at the end of life, but at the same time, a patient might say, "Well, you know, I'm I still want to take my ex, you know, because even though that that might um, uh, might be like an experimental therapy, you know, to help a patient to see if that'll um, um, improve their um, the length of time that they have or, or slow the disease." That's that's not a incompatible with that, and patients still have a right to explore experimental treatments uh, even while they're on hospice. It's just generally the um, hospice, the medical Medicare, which is usually most patients on hospice are on Medicare. They 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 don't pay for that care. They do let you see a doctor on the outside, one doctor on the outside, like your old primary doctor or somebody else. So. So there, there is a way to still have hospice care, high quality end of life care, and still explore the other aspects that you're talking about. But of course, I'm the, we, we, we don't, the end of life care folks are focused on how to make that quality of life as good as possible. So, so that, um, no matter what the patient is doing, um, you know, that's the, the best possible day. And, and then also, uh, the people who live on after the patient that they're, they're not racked with, um, complicated grief or, um, you know, uh, trauma from the, um, from, from their loved ones. Um, passing. So right on. So, so just for the sake of clarification, because of the particular audience that I have, you know, you, you said that the, the patient may still want to be taking their ex and it's a, you know, uh, uh, it may be an, uh, you know, not totally researched or finished, um, uh, medicine or whatever. When you say X, you meant like a variable, like whatever pharmaceutical that they were getting good relief on. You are not referring to ecstasy MDMA, correct? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah in, right. in, on another show, you wouldn't have to clarify that, but on this show you do. So it was, uh, we work with a whole yeah. lot of different entheogens. So although, I mean, I, certainly we can talk about entheogens and, 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 and pharmaceutical entheogens like, uh, MDMA here or the cogeners MDMA is like similar to, um, you know, uh, something from sassafras root, sephirol, and that, um, these are, you know, and, and, and also has similar, it's similar to, um, mescaline and it's been, mescaline has been used for, you know, a thousand years at least and more in, 
in, in different types of healing, like holistic healing that we're talking about. So there's definitely a, uh, like that, we can talk about that too. But I, I was referring to in that context, like if anybody wants to sort of use, I've had a lot of patients in hospice that continue to use different like supplements or natural medicines um, that are, you know, they hope that have anti-cancer activity, for example, but at the same time, they're receiving high quality hospice care. So it's, it's still possible to have that hope mm-hmm. of, of um, having something to, you know, do something about the disease process. Uh, but also being under the care of a team that's really focusing on your um, comfort and quality of life. So, so while we're probably not going to have time to get into the the MDMA mimic that you just suggested, which is like um, uh, mescaline and from a root, I know that there's a lot of people whose ears just perked up like mine did. Can you just give us a quick search term for folks who want to look that up? Like, what what would they Google to find out more about this preparation you're talking about? Oh, oh, uh, sassafras root. Yeah. Um, oh, it's sassafras. It, okay. Yeah. That, that was, that was just, I was just giving an example of like, you know, it's a MDMA was made in a German by a German chemist in the 19th, uh, early 1900s. Um, but it's chemical structure is very similar to, um, uh, chemical that's been used in natural medicine for a long time, uh, sassafras oil, an ingredient in sassafras oil. Um, so that's all I, I was just sort of tying it back to back to a natural um, cogener or, or something in nature that it's very similar to. And then I was also tying it to the class of, of um, compounds called phenylethylamines. Phenylethylamines um, are, are, you know, what MD, it's, MDMA is like that. And, um, uh, and and there are naturally occurring phenylethylamine mescaline, as, as your, your listeners might have heard of. So I was, I was just giving you some. So you threw MDMA over there uh, and talked about entheogens. So I wanted to, one of my interests is, is this class of compounds. And I think they're, they have a huge role to play in, um, in end of life care. And, and, and we're getting lots of uh, re- research studies on that nowadays. So uh, it's even more um, compelling. Um, and, um, and I, I'm, I'm in incorporating some of that in my practice, but we can talk about that later. Right on. So because cannabis is such a versatile healing herb, you know, it's, it's used for a wide range of relief in all sorts of ways, capsules and vaped and tinctures and suppositories and smoked. But, you know, as, as a doctor, you know, who still has um, a very active clinical life and you are seeing patients and families all the time. I, I I imagine that even though there's a wide range of possible um, uh, uses for cannabis, that um, that there are some that come up more often. Uh, what are these uses that come up more often that you see um, when actually dealing with real life patients? Well, cannabis is a wide, widely utilized um, for managing the pain. Managing uh, fatigue, managing insomnia, um, managing um, like nausea and vomiting. Um, uh, th- those are some of the. Uh, uh, th- did I mention mood? <laughs> I think I think those, that that there's like a whole symptom cluster that um you know cannabis can help patients with and that's that's exactly um what i have seen in my practice and encourage patients that um, have access to cannabis um who are at 
um, you know, in, in, in end of life care settings. It's not it's not always easy to to make that access thing happen. I know we're going to talk about that later, but when you do have access to cannabis, uh, it can do a lot of work to take care of these um, really difficult symptoms that um, normally doctors would prescribe opioids uh, and benzodiazepines and some um, pharmaceutical anti-nausea medicines to treat. It, it is really interesting, isn't it, how um, some, of the, some of the symptoms that patients want relief for are, are some of the more basic things that cannabis helps with, like nausea and pain and just general muscle tension, stress, anxiety about being sick. And, and yet, um, you know, once folks start taking it for that, they start to realize all these other benefits like, oh, gosh, my 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 IBS has gone away or my headaches have gone away. And 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 then suddenly now they're now they're taking it for a much wider range of symptoms than they were originally taking it for, because once they have first person experience with it, they're like, oh, my God, where's this been all my life? <laughs> you got it. That's right. That's called I call those side benefits as, as opposed to side effects. So, so, um, we're going to go to the, we're going to go to a break soon. Um, and then we're going to, during the second set, we're going to talk much more specifically about using cannabis, uh, for end of life care. But yeah, I want to, before we go, I want to make sure that we, um, we talk about how this process gets started. You know, when cannabis comes up, do you find that it's normally you as the doctor who is mentioning it to the patient and their family? Or do you find that usually it's the patient who has found out about it on their own and they are requesting this guidance from you? Well, Shingo, I would say that, that the answer to that question has shifted quite a bit over the, the last, you know, 10, I, I guess I've been, I've been interacting with patients, um, you know, in a, as a professional medical student or something for t almost 20 years. So the situation from the first half of my career practice has shifted where um, to w initially where I was bringing it up more to now where patients are already already know about this and are bringing it up for for more specialized guidance. So it's 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 really um, now that, now, of course, that changes in terms of demographics that you're 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 working with. Um, you know, what is the age range of the patient? What is their ethnic background? Um, are, what kind of setting are they in, like in a nursing home or a hospital or in a community setting? So it's, it's really those variables. And then now I'm in a practice where, you know, cannabis is very prominently um, featured on our, our, you know, on our materials and, and people know me for that kind of work. So it's, um, <laughs> it, it did, I end up getting patients who already know about it and, and are, more like, well, yeah, I know it can be helpful. I've tried it, but I don't really know how to, I need to kind of refine that or I need more guidance. So a lot of times patients are bringing it up. Well, actually, that's a that's a great uh, transition. So our next set is going to be all about um, refining and patient understanding of how best to use cannabis. So that'll be great. Let's go ahead and get this first commercial out of the way. Um, we're going to take a short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is hospice and palliative care specialist, Dr. Sunil Agarwal. Sometimes the topics I want to share with you are far too brief for an entire Shaping Fire episode. In those instances, I post them to Instagram. I invite you to follow my two Instagram profiles and participate online. 
The Shaping Fire Instagram has follow-up posts to Shaping Fire episodes, growing and processing best practices, product trials, and, of course, gorgeous flower photos. The Shango Los Instagram follows my travels on cannabis garden tours, my successes and failures in my own garden, insights and best practices from personal grows everywhere, and always gorgeous flower photos. On both profiles, the emphasis is on sharing what I've learned in a way that you can replicate it in your own garden, your own hash lab, or for your own cannabinopathic health. So I encourage you to follow at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los and join our online community on Instagram. As a business owner, you are incredibly busy. In reality, you are responsible for everything your company does. You've got so many responsibilities every single day that often you just don't have the time to really dig into your marketing as deeply as you'd like. You know there's more that you could do to reach out to new customers and encourage loyalty in the customers you already have, but you certainly don't have the time for it, and you're not ready to hire somebody full-time for that role either. For you, I recommend Blunt Branding. At Blunt Branding, Kirsten Nelson and her team are focused on improving your bottom line. You know, most marketing firms are excited to make your logo, packaging, and website very pretty, but they leave responsibility for improving your bottom line up to you. They don't want that kind of responsibility, but that's pretty much the most important part of marketing, right? Kirsten and her team will help you engage new customers, funnel them to your point of sale, whether it be online or a storefront, and keep them coming back to you and telling their friends. Now, if you happen to be a new cannabis company or an established company moving from medical to adult use in your state, Kirsten especially can help you. Not only is she well-versed in marketing and finance, but she totally gets cannabis, whole plant medicine, terpenes, heritage farmers, and the particular needs of startups. Check out what she did recently for Moontime Medicinals and Humboldt at MoontimeMedicinals.com. Kirsten and her team put together a whole brand package for them, built their website, and wrote their sales materials. No doubt this is a paid commercial spot, but that does not mean they bought my opinion. I've worked with Blunt Branding on five projects now for various of their clients, and every single time they have done more than they have promised and over-delivered on results. I love how they generate new revenue and focus on that as the goal instead of just making a pretty logo. Similarly, every single friend I've referred them to has come back to thank me, and that just does not happen every day. Grab a pen and paper because the website address is coming up. If you want someone to implement marketing programs that feed your bottom line, give Blunt Branding a call. They will share proven techniques to increase your audience and generate sales while using cutting-edge technology solutions in the background that make all of this easy, automatic, and trackable. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash Blunt Branding to find out more. You can also click the link in our newsletter. Blunt Branding, marketing that makes you money. Did you know that Shaping Fire has a fabulous YouTube channel with content not found on the podcast? When I attend conventions or speak or moderate panels, I always record them and bring the content home for you to watch. The Shango Los YouTube channel has world-class speakers, including Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery, talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profile. Nicholas Mahmood on regenerative and polyculture cannabis growing. Dr. Sunil Agarwal on the history of cannabis medicine around the world. Ben Cassidy of True Terpenes on using terpenes for health in your everyday life. Reggie Godino of Steep Hill on the cannabis genome. And Jeff Lowenfels on the soil food web. There are several presentations from Dr. Ethan Russo on terpenes and the endocannabinoid system. And even my own presentation on how to approach finding your dream job in cannabis and why we choose cannabis business even though the risks are so high. 
As of today, there are over 100 videos that you can check out for absolutely free. Go to youtube.com forward slash Shango Los or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los, and our guest this week is hospice and palliative care specialist, Dr. Sunil Agarwal. So, you know, during the first set, we kind of gave a little background for folks who are new to thinking about end-of-life care, so we know exactly when it is, what it is, and, uh, you know, what it may take to get the get the topic started on cannabis medicine. Um, I, during this set, we're going to talk a lot more about the how, right, um, as, as Sunil was talking about before we went to break. Um, there's a lot of different ways to use cannabis, and not all of them are appropriate for, for each kind of ailment. Now, before we get into those specifics, I want to point out that there is no way that we are going to get through all of the different ailments and ways that cannabis can help um, during this show or, or during one of any show. And so there's, I want to refer you to a handful of Shaping Fire episodes that we already have out that goes in depth into cannabis use for particular ailments. So here, here they are. So uh, episode 22, you can uh, learn about treating brain injury with cannabis with Dr. Ethan Russo. Episode 36 is on breathing, COPD, and asthma w- and ca- with cannabis with Dr. Uh, Dr. Robert, uh, excuse me, with Robert Littman, um, episode 57, using cannabis for Parkinson's with Zoe Sigmund, episode 60 on decreasing chronic pain with cannabis instead of using opioids with Dr. Eddie Ray, uh, episode 62 on um, uh, satisfying sexually with a chronic disease with uh, counselor and therapist Chris, Chris Maxwell Rose, and then uh, the recent episode, episode 67 on treating migraines with cannabis with Dr. Ethan Russo. So, um, so with that, um, Sunil, you know, most people think of using cannabis medicine by smoking a joint, right? Just because that's kind of what the picture that they have in their head from culture. But really, smoking's not usually the proper form for most patients, both because uh, the dosing comes on so fast and also most terminal or end-of-life patients are are not usually a location that, that smoking is – um, you know, appropriate because they're, they're likely indoors and perhaps in some kind of a institutional setting. So, so what, when, when people ask you about, well, well, doc, should I get some cannabis flower to smoke? What, what do you, how do you interpret that for them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also, the other, I, I say the same thing you just said. And also the fact that with smoking, you, um, it doesn't last as long. Uh, it might, co- might be quick to come on, which actually can be nice and helpful. Um, and for that reason, I don't. I try to, if a patient has the accessibility to have uh, vaporizers, access, dry flower vaporizer, or or clean a clean uh, oil that's vaporizable without pesticides or solvents, um, and you know any excipients. So there are oils can be vaporized too, and, and inhalation is can be really effective when you need relief like now. Um, and you don't need that much. So you're fast acting and titratable, you know, uh, as I'm sure your listeners know, is there some of the advantages of that route. But the disadvantages are, like you said, context, environment that might not be conducive to that. And also the, uh, the fact that, um, you know, your relief might not be as long lasting because the onset and, and, and fall off is, is, is short. So I just kind of educate patients about that and that if you do smoke, 
you know, uh, the Institute of Medicine uh, in 99, their earlier report on cannabis and, and, and end-of-life care, you know, um, they said that, yeah, hey, you know, the risks would be outweighed by the, I mean, the benefits would be outweighed with the risk, risk of smoking in patients who are, are terminal or end-of-life. So we don't really, I mean, if, if a patient wants to do that and, and likes that and likes the flavor, the taste, you know, um, that approach and they, and they have a setting that's conducive to that, I'm not going to. I'm not going to, you know, stop that or get, or cause it, that, yeah, there are risks like soot, um, you know, coughing. Um, and of course you were mentioning the respiratory sensitive individuals in that earlier show you had on the COPD. Um, so those are the, those are the risks, but if, if they're okay with those things or, and, and I think, I still think it's worth supporting patients to do that. It's a very old method of use. Um, and it might be part of their tradition. Uh, it might be part of their, um, you know, the, the sensual aspects of cannabis. And I, I didn't get to mention that in the last section, that cannabis is also useful for patients at end of life on on improving, you know, their um, sense of being and well, just overall general psycho-emotional spiritual wellness. And so anything that's going to help connect them to a tradition or a, a aroma that feels, you know, comforting is is great. So that's that's all the big caveat, I would say, to patients about that. I like how you put point that out about the tradition, culture, and the, um, I don't know, the emotional connection with flower, because it really is different, isn't it, between people who are learning about cannabis and starting to use it for the first time at end of life versus a lifelong user of cannabis who is using it at end of life. I mean, I have gone to so many patient events where, you know, you've got these 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 older folks who've been smoking weed their whole life and you know they look so much more at ease and in their realm when they've got a joint and they're smoking it and for me as an asthmatic i'm like oh you know all that combustion and all that heat that's not you know for me um that in that in makes it harder to breathe and isn't great but but you see these you see these folks and like it's it's been their release from anxiety and part of their social world for so long i discourage people to you know try to have those people switch to you know something else uh, just because they are you know dealing with end-of-life care because you don't want to take from them something that they have been using effectively their entire life you know let the the they're going to get the the muscle relaxation, the anti-anxiety, the increase in appetite. You know, they're going to get the basics, whether or not they're, you know, smoking and combusting a joint or using a vaporizer. Um, but gosh, you know, let them let them let them use it the way that they want to. Yeah, exactly. We we our philosophies often don't take away what people it's already working for them, but maybe you can add to it or supplement. You know, as long as it's safe. Um, so I, 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 you know, the, uh, then I would educate patients about the value of tinctures, you know, um, or, or suppositories or, um, method or oral edible route the, you know, if they aren't, um, that, that they could add that in and, and enhance the benefit that they're getting. Um, so that, that's sort of how I approach that. Like it's both and, you know, yeah, yeah. possible. And so uh, before we move on from smoking, so I guess against essentially the summary is, is if, if there's no uh, health reason for the patient to stop smoking and they love smoking joints, let them, you know, go about their, their way that they always have. But if, um, if there are lung issues, um, or, or if they might be able to be allowed to do this indoors, you know, consider a flower vaporizer, which, um, 
you know, honestly, <laughs> I've heard from so many patients who they just close their door and they vape in their room in an institution that's federally funded and it's not allowed. But because, you know, vaporization isn't smoke, it doesn't get the same kind of attention from staff. And so, um, you know, that's that. <laughs> and so, you know, be, be aware of vaporization as an option, um, but don't think it's the only option um, just because somebody's sick. So, so let's move on to capsules. So, um, you know, uh, capsules are good for many patients because of the ease of use, right? There's, there's no smell. It's, it's discreet. Um, it's, it's very easy with the dexterity of the fingers, you know, to just take a capsule versus, you know, roll a joint or, or, you know, uh, take tincture or things like that. But, um, yeah. but it's not so good for some folks with like throat and some stomach issues. So, so please speak yeah. to your experience about capsules. Yeah, you, you got it. I mean, a capsule can basically people talk about um, encapsulating in, in usually like uh, cellulose capsules, um, various extracts of cannabis. Uh, some people just use raw uh, or heated up flour um, and, and ground up, you know, um, cannabis flour, uh, or more commonly, um, an, an oil extraction like a coconut oil extraction or you know, glycerin. Um, and then you, uh, or, or, and then your alcohol extraction, and then you, you just take, take a chunk of that and then fill it into a capsule and there you have an encapsulated, um, cannabis product, which, um, you know, as you said, by, you, you, it bypasses, it's not the lungs, it's not the oral mucosa, it goes straight to the stomach and in the small intestine, it, um, you know, absorbs, the absorption is more variable, um, but it's still, it's longer lasting. And if you have, if you take it with a fatty meal, um, you know, or oil, drink, sip some oil, um, it'll improve the absorption ability. And then it goes, has first pass effect through the liver. So you get more potent. And um, if you're working with a THC, you get 11 hydroxy THC, which is more potent. And, uh, you know, you, you can have several hours of, of effectiveness. And, you know, all you had to do was just swallow one capsule. So that's very convenient and, um, you know, I think uh, can, can do a lot of um, good for patients uh, for, for the symptom clusters and um, uh, that we were talking about before. So, yeah, it's, it's very, I, I, I think you're right, the swallowing challenges are there. Uh, I've had some patients, um, or I've heard about patients that just skip the, uh, who have feeding tubes in. Um, and um, I had a doc teacher, a doctor who was a teacher of mine in medical school, and she told me stories how they would just, in the 80s, uh, somebody who had you know, used cannabis for, for nausea, vomiting, symptom relief, but couldn't swallow. Uh, so they would just, they made an oil um, and dripped it into the wow. um, opening of the uh, food, the feeding tube. Yeah. So that's, a, you know, sometimes you got to just skip the entire upper gut, upper GI and go straight to the, the opening that patients use. Yeah. Wow, that's 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 extraordinary. I've I've not heard of that before. Uh, one of the interesting things about capsules, and you hit on it just a moment ago, that there are there are some uh, uh, stomach issues that you have to avoid it because even though cannabis is good for stomach issues, the capsule itself is irritating for lots of different types of patients. And so, um, it, it's weird to say that you know cannabis is great for stomach issues and digestive issues, with it, which it is, but 
but a, a the method, the capsule itself may be the irritant. So, um, right. you know, patients, patients and caregivers, they'll get more sophisticated as, as, as we go with this. Um, you mentioned a wide range of things that could be in capsules, uh, you know, from, um, you know, uh, just, just, uh, flour that has been put into a capsule um, and and then oils and then and then whatever type of combinations that they might purchase at a at a um, at a recreational legal cannabis store um, I think it's probably a good idea for us to mention that if you are interacting you know if you're using uh, capsules that are homemade versus capsules that are store bought you're going to want to make sure that you take you know at least one of these capsules maybe a few if there if you think that there might be a lot of variability to them and go ahead and drop them off at a uh, a, a cannabis um analytics lab hopefully you, you know if you don't have one in your state you'll have one soon the point i'm trying to make is that uh dosage is very relevant when it comes to this because you know you know one of the big aspects of medical cannabis is repeatability of results you don't want to have a patient who is taking, you know, a particular dosage of a cannabis product consistently, and then all of a sudden they take the eighth or ninth capsule, and and now they're over the moon high because um, there's so much variability in it. So, so I'm a big fan of people, you know, making their own cannabis medicine. But um, uh, would you agree that the the repeatability of results is essential when it comes to uh, this type of care. Absolutely. Yeah. If you, if you can get to a lab, uh, if there's, if you're in a state where you have access as a patient or as a uh, consumer, um, um, why not utilize it? It's good to know how much, you know, at least the, the potency. So you, not, there's other testing for safety too. You know, if you got it from someplace and you're not sure of the pesticide content or heavy metal uh, residue, um, so th those are also important for safety purposes. Um, uh, and, um, and then potency is great too. So you can know, okay, I'm, I'm trying to, I want to get five milligrams of THC and 25 milligrams of CBD, or, or I want to have a high THC, low CBD, or, you know, I want to, I want to, some places offer terpene testing. So th those kind of things will give you a chance to to understand more about what your responsiveness is and and what you might need to adjust to maximize the response you're looking for so it's it's very uh, it's very helpful though i it's hard to some places don't have it and sometimes the testing is expensive so um the, those are the draw the limitations Sure. And, and while we're talking about limitations, let's, let's hit on the limitations of capsules. We've already hit on the fact that, that the actual act of swallowing them can be an impediment for um, many patients. Um, but also the, the putting them together, the actual physical capping them up is, is very likely going to be something that is going to be difficult for the patient. And gosh, it's, it's also very possible that it's going to be difficult for the family members too, because making caps is not the easiest thing uh, unless you've got, you know, very fully functioning flanges, you know, and, and yeah. well, there is a capsule making machines you can get, which we sometimes patients benefit from simplifying their lives. You know, it's like an auto auto capper. 
Absolutely. And, and, you know, for somebody who is uh, uh, working in end of life care and it's not going to be immediate, that might be, that may, may, may make a lot of sense. Um, the thing, the, the biggest drawback for me when recommending capsules to patients though is the fact that you're, you're kind of, uh, tied to the preset dosage that's in the capsule. And I'm a big fan of, um, uh, variability in dosing uh, from day to day uh, based on the patient's needs so they can titrate themselves. And for this, um, tinctures become very popular. Um, what have you seen as far as like the, uh, the benefits of a patient being able to control their dosage up or down based on their day? Oh, well, that's, yeah, I would, uh, that's very beneficial, especially when you're, um, you know, struggling with getting your regimen right, or you're in the early phases for for patients who, you know, kind of already know what their um, what their sweet spot is, what their um, you know about amount of medicine that's going to improve their um, whatever symptom or you know global cluster they're treating, and then it's um, capsules. You know, can be a simple sort of fix, but if you haven't really nailed that down, the, there's nothing like the tincture um, to really help to um, kind of play with, okay, let me half a milliliter here or there or a quarter mil um, you know, increments just to kind of see what happens. And that's, we call that auto titration. Um, it's, it was, this, it was a, back in the day uh, when we were still fighting for whether we can even you know, have medical marijuana in all these states that we have it now. It was all this, um, you know, um, there would be this, the conservative establishment would say, oh, well, Gosh, you know, there's no there's no single dose, and that's that's terrible. Like, what kind of medicine is that? And um, and then we'd go back and say, well, no, this is even this is called auto titration. You can actually you a patient can self adjust their dose based on what they what their need is and, and how they respond because there's so much variability in you know each individual patient's endocannabinoid tone, their absorption, their um, metabolism of different cannabinoids, and their based on their their genetic profile. So it's um. It's really a uh, it's a huge asset to to cannabis medicine to have this uh, ability to safely, you know, um, uh, have little slight scales of sli you know sliding dose sliding scales so to speak. It's interesting too how different patients use that variability that sliding scale uh, differently than each other. For example, I have seen about the same number of patients who um, have a smaller dose of THC and a higher dose of CBG and CBD in the morning, and and then maybe a little bit more by daytime as their body is getting a little more sore, and then by evening when they've already you know visited with their family and done what. Whatever they have to productive or whatever during the, the day and they get to the evening, they increase their dosage to decrease the, the stress on their body and just make their body more inhabitable. Whereas in that example where you start slow and you increase the dosage throughout the day, I've seen just as many patients go the opposite way where they wake up in a great amount of discomfort because uh, for many of them, it's, it's from, you know, s sleeping or or being horizontal and not sitting up or whatever, and so the, so they wake up in a great deal of discomfort, and so they start the day heavily, and then and then they slow down through the day, and then and then they increase again at night, so they they can increase their cannabinoid load before they go to sleep, and it's that kind of variability which um, a lot of patients 
love about cannabis, right? Because you're just not really offered these options as a doctor in your situation where you can really go up and down and, and give the patient so much control. Oh, that's fascinating, Shango, that you've, you've been able to see that kind of uh, you know, range of variable usage and, and uh, effectiveness. That's just so fantastic to hear. So, so when you are explaining uh, uh, um, variability of dosage, individualized medicine, and, and that the patient's in control, for, for, for most patients throughout their life, their relationship's been with the doctor is that the doctor tells you how much to take, and you're not supposed to deviate from that. But we all know that we all pretty much deviate from what the doctor tells us, and then we often are not clean about that with our doctor because we, we because they're an authority figure how do you how do you go about explaining to a patient that they are in control of this medicine and they can take as much or as little as they want how do you kind of get them past the taboo that they are in control and that they don't have to do it the way um the way that they're being told yeah absolutely i mean that i think um a lot of what i've uh, i'm coming from this integrative medicine background, you know, where, um, uh, people are used to, uh, um, you know, having a little bit more autonomy or a little more involvement in their healthcare. Um, and so that, that certain type of consumer or patient that, that is already, uh, you know, uh, learned to listen to their body and, and to, to, to be more active in that uh, pursuit. And cannabis is a traditional plant medicine, natural medicine. And, and that's, you know, people grew their own and, and, and made their own products for thousands of years, probably. And um, I think it's just, um, um, you know, just reminding people that this is not um, kryptonite uh, <laughs> and that it's not going to be like you take too much and then you're going to go to the, you know, fatal overdose and, you know, something like that like might happen if you're, um, you know, trying uh, some other more higher risk profile natural substances. Because there, there are definitely, you know, if you take too much datura or something like that, you know, you can have a really significant reaction or other, other types of plant medicines that have value, but, but also have a narrow window. So it's emphasizing the safety, um, you know, from the medical standpoint is really important. And it's, we, we're fighting, you know, decades and decades of, of political um, and, you know, health po po political, po politicized public health messaging on the, um, you know, uh, extremely uh, severe dangers of cannabis so that even one, you know, micro fragment is enough to, you know, um, be so dangerous to society that somebody needs to be put away in jail. And that, that's just that, that kind of reinforces the, that fear and that cons that like, let me be very, very cautious. The other thing I would say is that there's been a kind of a proliferation of para educators uh, um, para health professional educators um, who, who help patients um, with with dosing, uh, with titration, with kind of feedback, and so it's it's having having somebody who, who you can kind of work with, um, who can help kind of guide you in a more you know definitely you can still you're still in control, but it's still nice to have a back and forth you know to to check yourself with and get other ideas, other other suggestions of medicine and product. And so I've, I've found valuable for patients um, when I can refer them to um, a, a company or an educator um, that's, you know, doing that work and coming from a patient advocacy standpoint where they're trying to empower with education. 
So that's uh, that's another way to kind of be in the in, in between ground. It's not just the doctor and the patient. It can be like a, a team of um, with, with health educators. I, I like that we keep on coming back to this team approach uh, because, you know, while this is becoming more and more popular historically, it's not really how Americans have interacted with the medical establishment. And, and I think that the, the more examples you give, uh, the more apparent it is that this this level of care that hospice patients are getting are, is so much higher um, that, and, and it's so effective that it would really be great if, if we all had that. Um, so, so let's talk about this last category of methods for using cannabis medicine and, and that's suppositories. And while, you know, while it get, always gets giggles when, when I speak about it publicly, um, um, when push comes to shove, um, it it can, it can cause so much symptom relief that it brings patients to tears because they, they've gone through all these different um, pharmaceuticals and, and they, they didn't reach the needs that they wanted. And so then everybody tells them they should try you know, cannabis medicine. And, and generally, you know, suppositories are not the first things suggested by friends, you know, so they go through, they go through smoking and maybe they'll go through capsules and maybe they'll go through tinctures. And then they're finally like, what the hell, you know, none of this stuff is working for me, but it's supposed to work and it's working for other people. But because of their particular health issues, you know, these other methods are not working. And so you can take an oil and, and make it into a suppository and then when you insert it rectally, the, the, the capsule or the, the, the oil, uh, the, so some people use like a, like a frozen, um, uh, frozen oil, uh, I don't know, pill, I guess I'd consider it. And, and then that melts and the, the, uh, the tissues on the walls of the rectum will absorb the oil and, and the two biggest benefits that I find that are unique to it is number one, it skips the stomach and, and whatever kind of problems could be going on in the stomach. But also, um, you can take a higher dosage of THC, um, uh, as a suppository than you can otherwise for pain relief. So how do you see it actually play out? first person and i guess suppositories are rare enough that you that you may not have uh seen much of this firsthand but but uh but perhaps you have so what are your thoughts well i think uh it's really i think you've pretty much said it all it's we don't have as much you know like uh pharmaco pharmacological data ph pharmacokinetic is what it's called where you know you look at absorption and you kind of calculate how much is in the bloodstream as a function of how much you put into the into the suppository that data isn't is there as much as we have with other routes of administration so it's a little there's a little bit more of a you know individualized or anecdotally driven um recommendation pattern which is fine i think it's um it's just we just need more learn to learn more i think you know, um, like, for example, I think, you know, the, the absorbability of CBD might be higher than THC or actually I think uh, the, the THC we have better data on than CBD. Let me put it that way in terms of absorption from the uh, even the ability to absorb from the um, rectum. So and then the other there are other issues with um, um, whether you're placing it in the right level in, in the rectum, because there's there's actually like um, some. The, the blood supply and there, there's a, there's there's a like a line of tissue that separates uh, one one level of the rectum from another and and there might be some some people might need even deeper insertion for better absorption but then 
you know, you, you really want to make sure you, you don't have anything in there that's going to cause any, any harm. Uh, like it should really just be a dissolving, um, you know, like bullet shape type, um, like oil, oil, uh, object. So the suppositories can be, there's more of an art to it. And, um, and I, I think, um, I, I think you, 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 it's sort of like, uh, smoking where you do bypass a lot of the liver effects uh, at the first stage. So that's kind of nice. Um, and, but you also get the longevity of effect of, of effect. So that's also very, can be very helpful. So I think it's, um, I, I have a less experience. I, I have patients that certainly use cannabis suppositories and, and they're very happy with the effect. Um, I have, we prescribe other medicines via suppository. So it's not, not a new method to me. It's just that we don't have as much data on it with cannabis. It's really interesting helping patients and their families, you know, once they've decided that suppositories are going to be their solution, um, it's amazing how much I've learned about suppositories just from trying to help uh, families figure out how to do it, right? You know, there, there are suppository kits online on eBay that you can pick up. And it's really funny. They look like, um, you know, they just, they look like ice, make ice trays, right? And, and people are putting, you know, a, a little, a little squirt of cannabis oil from a syringe and a little bit of shea butter and a little bit of coconut oil in there and then tossing them in the freezer, which is like a really, really basic, um, recipe and um and you know they, they get harder and, and then once they take them out you know they've got a few moments to um introduce it to the body before it warms up and gets uh soft and of course that's always an interesting experience for the patient um to have something so chilly down there but yeah. uh but um it's interesting like i find that more and more people are realizing that a lot of um, just regular old capsules like you'd buy at the pharmacy, just like empty, you know, number three capsules, um, they as well will uh, disintegrate in the rectum. And it really doesn't have to you, you don't really necessarily have to go down this path of, you know, building your own reinventing suppositories. Um, uh, right. But but. You know, it's a it's a whole rabbit hole of its own. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think it's um, we need more data, um, but I think I'm really happy to hear that patients are making their own products and exploring it. And um, I think a lot of folks are also interested in this for disease modification. You know, to get the higher number of milligrams to see if that will um, help to change the course of their uh, cancer. Uh, and I just I think it's harder. We need more information to find out exactly how much is coming out of there uh, into the bloodstream so that we can, um, you know, help guide better. And I think there's going to be, we're going to find it's not, it doesn't, not everything absorbs the same way that, um, in, that, that you get in the, you know, small intestine. So it's, um, it's going to be, um, uh, I don't know, um, ho hopefully somebody is uh, going to do that, those studies. So, so what, what advice do you have for folks who are going to use different methods together? So say they're going to use capsules and smoking or vaporizing and a tincture or, or, you know, one of the others in suppositories, um, uh, because, you know, in, in taking them these different ways, you, you have issues with, you know, timing of when it hits your body and also yeah. having to th do the math of your, your dosage. You've got a, you know, a lot of experience with, you know, a variety of medicines and stacking them. Right. So, yeah. so, so how do you teach that to patients? Yeah, it's, it's pretty much like, a uh, you want to have 
when we're talking with end of life patients, so a lot of there's a lot, oftentimes a lot of symptom burden that's just going to be there throughout the day. So, so it's useful to have a kind of a workhorse, you know, something that's um, uh, giving you a steady state um, or more, you know, long acting effect, and that's like we talked about, you know, tinctures or, or capsules. Um, and and then you can think of other methods, uh, vaping, uh, and even suppositories as kind of a um, a shorter acting like breakthrough or, you know, thing, something that you can layer on top of that uh, longer acting workhorse. So I'd like to think of it that way uh, to help patients understand that there's something you're going to kind of need at the, ba- at the basal level. And then what else do you need when, when you need something beyond that? And that's, that, that, that's, that's sort of a good way to think about it. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good idea. Have, have the one be your central solution and then have, have these, these extras that you might add as, as needed. Um, do you normally recommend that patients, uh, keep some sort of dosing journal too? Yes, that's very helpful, especially when you're trying to figure things out and seeing what's working and not working. And of course, with the, you know, this is a complex botanical medicine with, uh, it's not just one active ingredient. So the more you also know about, you know, what, what percentage or con- uh, consistency or potency material you're putting in your body. So making note of that um, quantity and time of day. Um, will, you know, and, and if you have, you know, you can put on the other, on the columns, okay, these are the symptoms I'm treating and, and this is what it was before and this is what it was after in terms of, um, you know, severity on a one to 10 scale, for example. So that, that kind of data, uh, can be really, you can look at, do that over like five days and get a lot of information and, and show that to your, you know, to so whoever's helping you, um, with, with dosing and, 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 you know, because it, it can become comp, it can become a lot. But this is just really to help, you know, make sense of everything. And there's just so many products is the problem, too. So people kind of get overwhelmed. And, and that's where, um, you know, starting with at least like one, you know, this one and then, and then another layer on top of it. And then keeping keeping notes will, will help to um, simplify this. And, you know, this is just, just the idea is just to sort of dial us in so that then you now you can, you know, move on with your life, you know, and, and, and do the things that you want to do. And the, the other thing I didn't mention in the, in the previous section about the details on cannabis is in end of life care, you know, there, there, there may not be like, um, a set dosing pattern. Just, it, it might be like, you know, people just are finding something that helps them with their mood. And, you know, they, they, they just, they use that or they, they, they use it when they like to, because, um, you know, their mood varies throughout the day or their, their level of interaction with people changes or they get, they get fatigued after a certain amount of time or they use it for energy. So sometimes it can just be a really like, okay, let me just have these on hand. And, um, I kind of know what they all do and what they're all good for. And so let me just sort of mix and match you know so that that's also another like i don't want to like make it so complicated and like a, a program you know it should, it should be a chance to also have a spontaneous um kind of empowerment toolkit yeah excellent oh, i like that an empowerment toolkit yeah i like that 
So, um, you know, it's not uncommon to hear from a patient, you know, three months into this process that uh, the cannabis just isn't working like it used to anymore. And, mm. um, and you know, it's one of the challenges with cannabis medicine that over time, the human body can develop tolerance. Um, would you explain a little bit about uh, tolerance to cannabis and, and how you, what kind of advice you give your um, patients about uh, manipulating their doses or taking tolerance breaks? Absolutely. I mean, I, I've, my colleague, uh, Dr. Dustin Sulak in Maine, uh, is an amazing osteopathic physician and cannabis researcher and, and scholar. Um, he has made such a nice um, like websites and patient literature and videos about his um, resensitization protocols. Uh, I just always refer my patients to please go listen to Dr. Shulak's um, lectures or videos about this. He has a website, healer.com. And so I I just have him do the explanation, but I mean, in a, in a, what he explained to people basically in a, in a bottom line is that, that you know your CB1 receptors, even CB2, but all, any receptor, which is the um, protein on the cells that um, on the surface of the cells, like of nerve cells, for example, that um, cannabis cannabinoids from cannabis um, you know bind to and signal through to cause the downstream effect of modulating excitability. Whether it's like um, you know overactive pain circuits, overactive vomiting circuit, or you know um, boosting up the activity of a of a neurons that are involved in mood, or or slowing down the activity of neurons that are involved in negative thoughts, all that kind of modulation that is is through those receptors, you know, through tickling or binding to those receptors, and you know if you just keep pushing and pushing and pushing cannabinoids. Um, for a long period of time, those receptors can get desensitized, um, and, and that means that they just they don't make as many of them, or um, you know, um, you, you, it's usually that like they just kind of come back into the into the cell membrane rather than being out there ready to receive signals. So um, it's, it's a dynamic system. So if you kind of take a break from the cannabinoid exposure or uh, the holidays, follow different protocols that Dr. Shulak has advised, you can really just resensitize the whole system it can kind of reboot nicely so that's that's the that's the solution there and in the, and on the extreme sometimes you take too much not only is it not working it can actually make things worse there's there's something called the cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome which is more rare but it does happen i do see it in my practice and I, we we think that there's a you know the body is like having an over overactive immune response to all these cannabinoids and, and ends up making an antibody. This is one theory that kind of um, might be blocking the, um, the receptors and, and end up ending up giving you more nausea and vomiting rather than less. So that, that's kind of the, um, everything is in moderation. So, so that's where I, if, uh, if cannabis isn't working as well, it's also possible that, um, they, you know, um, other therapies might be helpful, you know, um, I, cannabis is not a complete medicine. It's certainly a holistic medicine. It can do a lot of things, but there are also other other natural medicines out there and other strategies um, that um, you know can 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 synergize with cannabinoids. So that's the other um, thing I would say about that. So let's take that and go the other direction with it. What kind of um, interaction with other drugs have you seen in your practice between, um, you know, the pharmaceuticals that there may be and, and, um, and then using cannabis? Well, the, mo the most um, common one that I see in my type of practice 
um, is a combination of cannabinoids and opioids. Um, and this is opioids from are derived from opium poppy, uh, like morphine, um, codeine, um, uh, and and then derivatives from thebane, which is another ingredient. Anyway, that's there's a whole class of opioids. Maybe people have heard about hydro, hydrocodone, hydromorphone, uh, you know, dilaudid, fentanyl, da, 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 there's a long list. Those medicines can be helpful for pain, but if they're the only ones you rely on, they have also significant problems with tolerance. Um, with um, dependency, with the constipation, um, with suppression of adrenal access, with long-term use. So if there's any way that you can make the, the dosing of those more effective, like, you know, that you, you take cannabinoids and layer that with opioids and the pain relief is synergistic or greater or lasts longer, that's kind of the um, one of the drug interactions that is very positive and, and actually has been studied in clinical trials. And we know it's a real phenomenon and it actually probably makes opioids safer because the blood level of the opioids also comes down, which lowers the chance for having an overdose. So that's that's kind of a, a big one that I, I see a lot. There's there's many there's long tables of drug interactions and in, in, of cannabinoids, one of the ones that was really pointed out with the introduction of high-dose CBD on the market, Epidiolex, uh, the tincture of um, cannabis that is used in, in, in seizure disorders, uh, FDA approved for that. Um, it, they, they go on pretty high doses, or they can go on pretty high doses of CBD, like hundreds and hundreds of milligrams per day. And at that level, um, it can impact your ability to metabolize um, other anti-seizure medicines that your doctor might have prescribed. One of them is called Clobazam, which is well-known, or our trade name is Onfi. And if you take a lot of CBD um, with Onfi, the Onfi levels become more um, toxic in the body, and so they have to be monitored more closely. Uh, and that's that's been shown in these studies. And, you know, that, that does come up from time to time. I have patients who, who have seizure disorders who come to see me for advice, and they're, they're taking Onfi, so we always monitor the blood levels of onfi while we're titrating up cannabinoids um so that you know we know that we're in a safe range so that the, the, it's it's kind of like on on one hand i can count the sort of some of the major issues in general cannabinoids play well with others from most medicines so um i think it's um it's just a matter of um uh what can what can we mix it with um, therapeutically i think there's a lot more to talk about in terms of what can you mix it with or what can it help to reduce the amount of reliance on? I'm, I'm not a purist. I think it's nice to use other medicines if you need them, but maybe cannabis will help to reduce the dose of those medicines. Excellent. Fantastic. Well, oh, were you done? Yeah. yeah. All right. Fantastic. So um, during the set, third set, we're going to talk about uh, trying to use cannabis medicine in real life. So far, we've talked a lot about, you know, the theoreticals and the ideal situation. But after the set or after the break, we're going to talk about, um, you know, resistance by the family and resistance by the care facility, which which is its own thing to tackle. So um, we will be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. And my guest today is hospice and palliative care specialist, Dr. Sunil Agarwal. This message is for folks who grow cannabis. I'm talking to home growers, patients, and commercial growers too. I'm probably talking to you. When you plan out your next growing cycle, be sure to check out Humboldt CSI Seeds at HumboldtCSI.com. Caleb Inspecta and his family have lived in Humboldt County for over 100 years. For the last 40 years, three generations of his family have cultivated extraordinary Sensamia cannabis in Humboldt, Mendocino, and Trinity Counties. 
Because of his lineage and the hard-earned experience that comes from growing up smoking and sifting large populations of cannabis plants in Northern California, the seeds you'll cop from CSI will be winning genetics based on longtime heavy hitters and updated and resifted to bring out new and exotic traits and better yields. Go ahead and ask around. Caleb, also known as Inspecta and Pirates of the Emerald Triangle, is a breeder's breeder. He reaches way back and works with significant strains, recreating them in new and interesting ways that you'll love as a toker and a grower, as well as offering you some surprises that will delight serious seed traders and cultivators. Humboldt CSI goes a further step and selfs all these chemovars so you know all the seeds will be female. These are not experimental feminized seeds. Humboldt CSI releases some of the best female seeds available anywhere, and it will show in your garden. Folks grew quite a bit of CSI Humboldt Genex last year here on Vashon Island, and everyone was pleased. The patients had beautiful female plants and didn't have to cull half of their garden as males. The folks growing for the fun of getting high grew colorful flowers with exceptional bag appeal and great highs. And breeders had seven out of seven females in a pack, which gave them a lot of phenotypic choices. Take a moment right now and visit HumboldtCSI.com. You'll find an up-to-date menu of both feminized and regular lines, along with photos and descriptions. That's HumboldtCSI.com. Pre-rolls have come a long way since the early days of normalization. When you choose Saints Joints, you are smoking all-flower, top-shelf pre-rolls with terpenes that will sculpt your high in a way that dry, old pre-rolls just can't. Whereas most brands release pre-rolls as an afterthought, for the last five years, Saints Joints has focused on their line of exotic, curated joints. And while some companies just chase the hype strains, Saints Joints goes deeper, searching out hard-to-find strains, unexpected crosses, and nearly forgotten land races and classics. And some hype ones, too. Not only does a joint from Saints smoke incredibly well, they have fine-tuned every step of the process so you don't get runs in the paper, the joint is just the right density to have a nice pull, and the joint stays lit, even if you get a bit chatty. Saints Joints boxes are works of art and will spark conversation when you pull them out at a party. Saints award-winning boxes change with every release, feature edgy outsider art, and often raise awareness of important issues like equal rights. Saints boxes are so desired that many collect them and display them in their homes. Ask your bud tender for Saints Joints and have a premium joint experience. Now, if you are a licensed cannabis cultivator, I have an extra message for you. Saints is looking for partners in legal cannabis states to expand the availability of the Saints Joints brand. Do you grow exceptional cannabis flower but are less excited about all the effort, cost, and risk of launching your own brand? Saints Joints may be just the partner you are looking for. Already established in California, Washington, and Oklahoma, and recognized by Entrepreneur Magazine and Green Entrepreneur as a cannabis industry leader, the Saints Joints brand will set you apart in your home market. The best thing I can recommend is for you to visit their Instagram at Saints Joints and look at their patented drawer design boxes. Become that brand everyone is talking about without having to build it from scratch. Check out the Instagram at Saints Joints and then visit saintsjoints.com to find out more.
In times like these, when so many cannabis companies are growing their flower in gigantic warehouses and fields using synthetic nutrients, it is good to know that there are authentic California heritage growers using natural farming techniques and sunshine to cultivate cannabis flowers for you. California has produced the best cannabis in the world for generations, and the idea that massively scaled industrial cannabis production could produce the same quality as small batch, lovingly cultivated flowers is just silly. Moontime Medicinals is located in Humboldt County on the lush South Fork of the Eel River watershed in the epicenter of the American cannabis heartland. Moontime Medicinals grows under bright California sun in greenhouses using only natural farming techniques like hugel culture, compost teas, whole food fertilizers, and fermented plant juices. Every part of their growing process plays its own part in nature, and nothing synthetic is injected into the process. The result is big, beautiful cannabis flowers with wide-ranging terpene profiles that taste like great cannabis should. If you live in California, ask your bud tender for Moontime Medicinals and visit Moontime Medicinals on the web and Instagram. Moontime Medicinals is also available as part of the Redwood Roots family. Moontime's whole flowers appear in Redwood Roots curated joint packs alongside other heritage cannabis cultivators like Lady Sativa Farm, Ridgeline Farms, Humboldt Redwood Healing, and others. Moontime Medicinals, top shelf cannabis, grown in harmony with nature. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shangolos, and our guest this week is hospice and palliative care specialist, Dr. Sunil Agarwal. So Sunil, you know, we've talked a lot so far about, you know, the why and the how of cannabis medicine in kind of like an idealized environment, but we both know that, um, when it gets down to the moment of helping a patient, there are challenges and, and, and hoops that we have to jump through to, to make it work. So um, number one on that list is usually resistance by the family, right? Because we've had, um, you know, what, 70 plus years of, of um, federal resistance to cannabis medicine and, and, it's, and it's taboo and a lot of people do not feel comfortable having their parent or loved one uh, using cannabis, which they are unfamiliar with and may ha have some you know, societal beliefs against. I, I figure you probably run into that all the time because you have such an integrative approach. You use a lot of stuff that people don't even know what it is. And um, so, so how do you normally uh, approach a family? Do you, do you normally... Um, I guess this probably has a lot to do with the, the state of the patient, but I'm just going to kind of set it up for you. Do, you. do you normally talk to the patient first or the family first? When, when you know that cannabis is going to be a helpful thing if used properly, how do you go about introducing it and working with, with a family that, that may be resistant? Mm -hmm. yeah, well, it's, um, the, the first thing I always try to do is to name the what it is um, – uh, so what the barrier is in this case, and, and um, you know, putting a name on it makes it a little bit more, um, you know, like a uh, tangible, understandable, um, contextualizes it into the larger um, social fa fabric of 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 a, of a patient and family's life. Um, you know, other issues in society uh, where we face discrimination based on 
you know, age, gender, race, religion, all the different things that unfortunately we still are are living with and, and are trying to systemically uh, address. So, and that, that term is stigma. The, the, the issue of stigma, um, which is tied to shame and fear and um, ostracization, that's, that's what you know, stigma comes from, this idea of being marked, a stigmata, a mark that, that kind of makes you, uh, you know, ostracized or socially outcast. And so there's a, there's a stigma of cannabis that persists and that was, you know, engineered um, or, or pushed, pushed by the, uh, the government for a long time. Not that there wasn't, um, there's always been kind of a, a, in puritanical settings some concern about substances that change your ordinary state of mind. And so I think people just need to understand that that can be done safely and appropriately in, in, a, in a accepted context that's safe and, and healing. And, and so I, after you talk about, you say this is stigma that you're facing. And if a patient tells me that they're, you know, they'd love to try this, but their their loved one is really like doesn't see it that way, um, or you know they'll they'll put limits. I've had some loved ones, uh, patients, tell me, oh well, you know my. Uh, my uh, siblings, older siblings, is somebody who has a long lifelong disability. She has siblings that's looked after, helps looked after her. But one of the siblings is is really in favor of cannabis. The other ones are not, and so they kind of like don't go as far as they could go in terms of what could help the patient. So th- things like that, I I come across, and I always tell family, I tell patients, listen, I'm happy to have a a family meeting, you know, a conversation with your family members um, to help them address their concerns or questions that they have about this. It's, you know, it's, just, it's, it's stigma and it's something that we should talk about. It's usually grounded in some um, ignorance uh, or, you know, lack of knowledge. And, and there, there is, there's fear too. And the, the, that's sort of the other angle is that sometimes the fear is sort of warranted, you know, in terms of like actual legal repercussions that can befall a family or a patient that they're concerned about. And, you know, that's where, you know, and that's where the other context around, well, what is exactly the, what are the legal issues here? What are the, you know, what are the, uh, you know, who, who's making the rules and who's enforcing those rules? And, and how, is there any way we can find medical exemptions or exceptions or, you know, utilizing that angle of, of, um, of medical care where you have to advocate for a patient's rights or their patient's needs, um, you know, and if the laws and rules are impinging on, on, on medicine, then, um, then, you know, what, what can, who, which social worker do we need to call? Which lawyer do we need to call? Who do we need to write a letter to? Um, you know, how, how can we, um, you know, f- uh, overcome that barrier? So that, that, that's sort of how I, um, family conversation, identifying stigma, talking with the family, um, inviting, you know, educating. And then, um, you know, if there are real barriers like uh, legal or administrative barriers, trying to address those with with um, with a team approach and, and, and medical uh, and letters if needed. It is interesting how, um, you know, even though the family is coming to you for expert advice, how often they will then try to um, create the ground rules for with for within which you work. So, for example, um, you know it's it's not uncommon for a family to say, "Yeah, we're okay with cannabis medicine, but only CBD and not THC." But they they don't really understand that THC, even at low uh, doses that don't cause euphoria, are still 
you know, THC is generally going to be part of a healing process when it comes to cannabis medicine. Yeah, that's right. That's those those kind of the the CBD only um, like is a THC stigma is is even more specific, you know, and 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 that's also requires um, the same approach. Uh, when you when you need to interact with a family and 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 they say yeah let's do a family meeting, um, uh, it is it's hard, right? Because you've got all these different uh, communication styles of all these different people, and you might you know the patient probably knows you decently, and and maybe the the spouse or maybe the one the one. Uh, child who is kind of running point for the family knows you pretty well, but then you've got all these new people in the room or on the Zoom call or whatever, and they don't know you. And like you're like, oh my gosh, how how am I going to communicate to this room where I've got all these varying people? How do you, how do you deal with that, Sunil? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, these are these are things that they teach us a little bit about in in um, in hospice and palliative medicine training fellowship training. And it's it really just uh, the, the the research shows that the more that family members speak in meetings, have an opportunity to to actually be heard and to to to, to speak rather than being spoken to, um, um, improves their um, their satisfaction with the experience. You know, so it's it's really more about creating a, a venue, a space, a platform for family members to listen to each other. Um, and, and to be heard about their concerns. So, you know, asking open-ended questions and, um, you know, certainly leading the meeting, but giving a lot of space for people to kind of state their concerns. And, and you know, and then if there are emotional aspects um, in, in, in that, uh, in their concerns, uh, oftentimes there are um, very strong emotional issues, fear, like I was mentioning, or, um, you know, the, sh- the shame or, um, that tied to stigma or whatever it might be, then, you know, naming those, naming those emotions. Like I can, I can understand, I can hear your frustration. I can hear that you're worried. Um, and, and that, that helps to improve the, the, the communication name, name the concerns and, you know, start to hopefully move towards, uh, you know, if, if this is actually something a patient needs and then being the advocate for the patient as a doctor and, you know, giving the advice that's, um, my, rec- my recommendation and then, you know, seeing what people say. So that's, that's how, that's how to approach those. It's, it's, there's an art to that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would think that, uh, clinical doctors, that is, is one of the key tools in their toolbox is communication skills, because certainly, uh, somebody who's interacting with family all the time is going to need a, a different version of communication skills than a, uh, a, you know, a research doctor, right. Who, who still needs to know how to interact with people, but it's a lot different dealing with the folks in a lab versus, um, uh, uh, family members who are dealing with a end of life uh, patient um, because they've got all their own emotions are all on like hyper then because they're they're freaked out and 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 they're trying to review their life's history with this person and they're they're, they're they got their own taboos oh my gosh what a what a soup of a mess yeah you got it and and that's that is our um, in my field. Um, hospice and palliative care um, communication is really one of the critical skill sets that we work on um, because it's very important to um, you know to deal with to a, to even figure out what's going on with a patient how you can better help their 
their distress levels or, or, or the family or sometimes I'm involved in helping them um, you know develop the care goals like whether I sh- they should go this way take that treatment take this treatment um, you know or focus more on a, on a fully palliative approach like trying to sort that out um, requires a lot of um, ability to um, understand the very various um, competing um, you know interests that are involved in trying to center the what the patient's values are so it's it is a um, it's, it's, you know, and in general, I would say um, when it comes to cannabis discussions and talking about this stigma, if people are, are ready to sit down and talk about it, um, we're all, we've already made huge progress. I remember um, when, um, you know, the state of Washington had no legal access to cannabis, you know, until this law passed. I mean, they had medical marijuana, but they didn't have uh, adult use. And, you know, the big campaign uh, that the ACLU ran was marijuana. It's time for a conversation. You know, and it was this this whole idea, hey, we can sit down and talk about this. You know, we can sort of change some of our um, preconceived notions. And that that was kind of a a brilliant stroke. And I I think the same thing is true in in the individual context with, with family. It, it, it is often frustrating because even when you have a family that is totally into it and they're, you know, they're modern, they're open-minded, and they're actually thinking about what's best for the patient, then you've got resistance from the care facility because generally they accept federal money and therefore are beholden to federal laws. I can imagine that as a, you know, integrative caregiver, um, that running up against that barrier causes you unending amounts of frustration. (laughs) Oh, well, yeah. I mean, again, as I mentioned earlier in our podcast, I have seen, I've seen a a nice amount of change in the, in the greater, you know, healthcare environment, um, residential care facility environment um, in the 20 years or so that I've been thinking about this topic and, and, and being in clinical settings, I would say. So I think, um, so, and, and, and so to, to add to that, like I've had, um, examples of where I've had, um, like ch- privately owned chains of, um, uh, assisted living or end of life residential care facilities, which have a lot of older population, like, um, one, one I'll just name is Aegis Living, A-E-G-I-S, Aegis Living, they're, they're huge, they're in multiple states, um, they, um, like I would say five years ago or, uh, something like that worked out a policy for, um, you know, allowing cannabis in their facility, uh, and having, having, um, uh, I've, I've seen other facilities that are privately owned also that allow their nurses to handle cannabis that patients bring in, um, you know, their, their care staff, if they're, if they're help getting help with medicines. And so the, so I've, I've kind of interacted with clusters of facilities that chose to not be beholden to some of the federal rules, even though their patients might be on you know, Medicare or, or receiving some federal benefits. And it's probably because they're, you know, independent um, or, or largely independent. Um, but, you know, there's always still some overlap. There's always some federal regulations, state regulations um, involved in, in all of these facilities. You know, and, and so it's, it's it's just a matter of like, well, does it, is it enough to make a difference or are we just using that as an excuse? 
you know, um, to to just sort of pump the issue. And so I've been I've been very heartened by the fact that some of these facilities develop their own internal policies in general. They'll say no to smoking cannabis. They'll say you know non-smoked products. They'll say that the patient needs to have a medical cannabis authorization. Um, and that things need to be labeled and this and that. So, um, you know, sometimes security around the product. So, um, like, I mean, like a secure, secure, um, storage. So that, that's where I, I think I've seen some changes now. Uh, and then the other place that I struggle a lot on this with was the hospital. You know, the hospital is really like the, uh, the center of, you know, advanced high-tech medical care and, and lots of regulations on, on hospitals. Um, and, you know, many times uh, patients would sneak things in and just sort of, uh, you know, um, the hospital didn't want the liability of saying, okay, well, this is, you had a, something happen to you and it's a medicine that we did not give you or authorize. So we, we just don't want you on it. And so that kind of like legal impasse um, prevented a lot of, um, you know, uh, acceptance. It's st- stigmatizing environment to use cannabis in, even though when patients might be hospitalized for things where cannabis could actually help their symptoms. So I would, you know, oftentimes prescribe like THC pills, you know, to patients from the pharmacy. So as, as a way to, you know, use some aspect of cannabis in a legal, in, in a legal framework. Um, but, but now I've seen um, there are some hospitals that are allowing cannabis in their, in their wards, not everywhere, but it's changed. Um, we I had, I had patients at Children's Hospital um, in the last couple of years where, um, they also are allowing children to bring in cannabis that their parents are bringing in and administering um, as long as they've had, they've gone through some kind of approval process that they have on the inside, which goes through their pediatric attending doctor and, and some regulatory setup. And, you know, it, it changes the, um, uh, the, the stigma significantly. The child now, you know, and family members don't have to hide it. And, and it's, it's um, you know, on, I've had some patients where they put it on the whiteboard. You know, their family members are writing on like this is what we're doing, and so that's been kind of a, a changing. There, there is an opening there happening, I would say, in, in the hospitals. And then I contacted the Department of Health in Washington, and they had said, "Oh, you know, we don't have any problems to patients using cannabis in facilities. Like, it's not, it's not anything that the state of Washington is um, limiting. You know, they they have granted these rights to patients. And so, anyway, it's it's kind of a uh, there, but the, all of that said, there are definitely facilities that are still out there that are uh, far more um, tied into um, federal pools of money um, and just say, hey, we don't allow that here. Um, and, and in those cases, patients have to be, um, you know, um, discreet. Um, I, this is probably a good point for us to give a loving shout out to nurses, right? Because there is no doubt that nurses, their creativity and hearts and knowledge are there at the center of these decisions between the doctor and the family and sometimes the gray market, right? Uh, I mean, so often I have come across nurses who are all like, okay, I've got a patient who uses cannabis at home. They're in hospice, but they're moving into the facility now, and I'm trying to move their medicine into the facility, um, what are the methods that are most discreet? And, you know, I, I play that role. I can, I can share with them. It's, it's for them and the family to decide, right? But um, nurses play such an important role in um, making sure that the patient gets the care that the patient wants. Oh, that's amen. Amen to nurses. Uh, they have definitely played a critical role. 
Um, there's one nurse who's been a huge leader in the national, you know, American Nurses Association, which is the largest organization of nurses. Um, her, her name is Mary Lynn Mathry. Um, and she has, um, you know, been a huge leader from, for decades on, on cannabis and medicine, starting professional education, doing her own research about uh, her own master's research when she was in graduate school about cannabis and, um, you know, talking to doctors and how it's important to have an open lines of communication. So I just wanted to put, shout out to Mary Lynn because, and then, of course, many, many nurses have now come forth and started cannabis nursing associations and all across the country. And um, they've really taken the mantle on to advocate for patients and, and to kind of help them toe that line. Yeah. For family members who are listening, who are thinking about going in this direction with their with their family, um, I'd highly recommend finding a nurse that is uh, educated and pro cannabis as an ally, because, you know, you're not going to do anything that's going to be more effective towards winning than than allying with a good nurse. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, so Sunil, before we wrap up here, you know, um, I've heard you speak a, a number of times, and one of the things that I really enjoy is is when you get to the part of your presentation where you talk about humans having a right to use healing plants, and you know, certainly cannabis has been you know taboo for many decades, but before that, you know, it was seventy percent of the pharmacopoeia. We used it for everything. And and then it fell out of favor um, with the government because it was uh, it was you know used as a scare tactic, and and so now everything's kind of a mess and and it's and it's slowly coming back, but at the end you know this is a plant that's naturally occurring, and um, you know I'd just like you to, to speak to the idea that um, that 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 the plant is naturally occurring and and it's something that we should have as an option as a patient at any point in our life. Well, you, you, you said it. I, amen. I mean, there, there's no, I don't think there's, I, 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 I don't think there's much else to say. It's just, it's simply the fact that we are, I mean, in my, my area of interest is the human environment relationship. And, and that's, I came, I came into medicine uh, having uh, a background in, in geography, a human environment relationship and how it applies to health and disease, to access to resources, to the therapeutic resources, the healing power of natural landscapes and nature and, you know, all this critical ecology that, that, that we're part of that determines, you know, uh, illness and, and access to health resources. So it's, Health, health and the environment is integral to our, um, you know, to who we are as humans, to our evolution, our, our connection to all other life on the planet. I mean, it's a, it is a, we, we are, cannabis and humans are, and all these, these plants are actually like distant cousins on the evolutionary, like, you know, um, tree of life. So it, it to me was always very, um, uh, you know, the, the idea that you have a natural right to, um, you know the bounties or the to, to natural plant resources um, is a very old concept in 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 law and you know I'm, I'm I don't know I think it's called natural rights um, and the the idea that the state that what is the compelling interest of the state to limit somebody's right to access um, you know natural resources and that that's where you know that's a social contract question it's like well you know what limits are are, are there for 
for example, safety or resource um, conservation. So, you know, you, you might say, oh, well, you know, if everybody took all the firewood from this area, then the wood, you know, collected as much as they wanted, then then there'd be no none, none left for, for everyone's needs. And, and so there has to be a limit. Or if you say, you know, I don't want people collecting this particular um, rare um, rare bird uh, or, you know, making these kind of endangered species pets because this, this species is at risk of extinction. There's this huge, you know, global uh, social reason to, to withhold, um, you know, trading an endangered species and, uh, and, and conserving resources that are very limited. Um, and that's, that's, you know, that's pretty much the limits that we play. And then, and then I guess the other one would be um, like, how much ricin can you make? Ricin is a you know naturally occurring like bioterrorism biotoxin which you can you can grow from from plants, and so there's limits on that for the safety of of people's ability to you know be free from bioterrorism attacks. So those are really the the, the idea that there's these uh, plant medicines that are going to be so dangerous for you that you know uh, so uh, you're going to abuse them so much and they're they're so unsafe and we have to take them away from people. That's sort of the that's the sort of overreach that infringes on that natural right, and people have to really, you know, ask the question: Is there is there a compelling interest of the government to limit this, um, you know, natural connection, or, you know, or to completely, in the case of cannabis or in these other natural medicines, like completely, you know, remove it from uh, entirely sever the relationship, you know. Like uh, legally speaking, there, there's no legal context. There's no legal way that you can um, have a connection with these these natural um, uh, medicinal plants, um, and and that's that to me is 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 what it comes down to. You know, uh, do we really think that that's a that's a valid um, reach of our of our government? And is there a compelling? And that that comes down to well, what is the argument they're making? They're saying it's very unsafe and dangerous, and I think that's um you know been proven wrong. So. Uh, and, and, you know, the fact that there's a long traditional history of use already um, should have proven that long, a long time ago. And, and I think that's um, that's the mess that you talked about, you know, that we kind of took these political um, we took these allowed the government to take these steps of overreach um, for naked, racist, political, you know, economic interest purposes. And I'm sure some people along the way were convinced that there was oh, some real danger here, and we're doing this to, you know, save the children, to protect our future, to, you know, um, like like getting rid of lead, lead, lead paint and lead gasoline, you know, um, but this is not that. And that's, that's really where, um, if we don't have a historical context, if we don't have uh, knowledge of our traditions, and we don't have a uh, appreciation and reverence uh, for the uh, right to access and be part connected to nature. We're gonna, we were gonna just kind of give that up entirely, and that's, that's really, um, you know, I think that's that's where I'm. One of the struggles that I'm very passionate about, and I appreciate you're asking me. And, and it's not, you know, cannabis is one, but I'm also there's a whole family of um, psychoactive biota, um, you know, um, entheogen, natural psilocybin mushrooms, and um, like ergot fungus that has a lysergic acid in it, or, you know, we mentioned peyote, which has mescaline in it, um, ayahuasca, which, um, you know, is a, has um, a DMT in it. And these are all substances that all these natural plants have chemicals in them that are like our brain's neurotransmitters. They're, you can call them neurotransmitter analogs. And so 
you know, nature has provided these amazing um, substances that that are, um, you know, fit like locks and keys in our in our um, body, and that's no surprise because we're all evolutionarily connected. So, anyway, it's just kind of a. I think we're we're having a, price, a crisis of connection to the world and 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 to our own connection to the natural world and and a sense that the government is. Uh, has passed laws that have tried to break that connection, and that's where we're we're trying to get back on on footing. And 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 I think for as a doctor, I can't. I think without these kind of without addressing this problem, we're never going to be. We're never really going to achieve a public health val, uh, a, a, a modicum of public health that that, that we um, we can. That's fantastic and so well put. Sunil, thank you so much. Well, let me see. I got a couple things to thank you for. Of course, thank you for sharing your incredibly valuable time with us and thank you for sharing your experience. And also, you know, just thank you on behalf of all of the patients that you bring your integrative approach to for, you know, being willing to think outside the box and uh, to be able to open, you know, open your heart and experience uh, to with the goal of decreasing suffering. You know, um, it's it's always a pleasure to interact with you because um, interacting with a doctor who is is truly dedicated to helping the patient instead of checking boxes, it always feels really good. So so thank you for sharing everything that you have, Sunil. You're most welcome. It's been a great honor and pleasure to work and to work with you. And I hope to, to we do future episodes. Fantastic. So if you want to find out more about Dr. Sunil Agarwal, you can go to the website for his clinic, and that's at aimsinstitute.net. That's A-I-M-S institute.net. And also, um, I recommend that you go back and you check out all the way back to episode number three of Shaping Fire. Uh, Sunil joined me. He mentioned earlier that uh, he uh, was a, was and is a geography buff, but we did this fantastic episode on the geographical history of Canada cannabis medicine. And um, if you're, you know, it doesn't matter if you're just getting to know cannabis medicine or if you've been following cannabis for a long time, this episode is just, it's just great to give you an idea uh, globally um, how cannabis has evolved in its relationship with humans. And also I want to remind you of the uh, six episodes that I mentioned earlier in the show um, on the, on, on the various uh, ailments that you can find out very specific dosing information um, and you can find out all uh, you can find all of those shows either where you downloaded this episode or at the website at shapingfire.com. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.